0: I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work.
1: Manet, for Zola, represents the most individual, the most original of his time. And so he sees Manet as adding a new note to this unfolding epic of human creation.
0: In this episode, I speak with Getty Museum paintings curator Scott Allen about the lives of artist Edouard Manet. Edouard Manet was the leading French painter of his day. His father was a high official in the French Ministry of Culture and his mother, the daughter of a French diplomat. There was nothing in his background that would have prepared Manet for the scandal that erupted in 1863 when his painting, Le Déjeuner sous l'herbe, or Luncheon on the Grass, was refused by the official Salon and put on view in the alternative exhibition, Le Salon des Refusés, or the Salon of the Refused Work. The painting of a frankly naked, not nude, young woman in a landscape, seated between two fully-dressed young men, with a second woman in the background dressed only in a chemise, dipping her hand in a stream, attracted howls of outrage from critics. It wasn't until three years later that the young aspiring writer Émile Zola came to Manet's defense with an extended article published in 1866 and then republished a year later as a pamphlet accompanying Manet's large, privately organized one-man exhibition. Manet was so touched by Zola's offer to make his pamphlet available at the exhibition that he suggested to Zola that he include an etched portrait of Manet by the artist Félix Brachmaud, opposite the title page, which he did. I begin this podcast episode by discussing Zola's defense of Manet with Getty Museum curator Scott Allen, who is currently organizing an exhibition of the late work of Manet, Over the past few weeks, I've been talking with Getty Museum curators about a series of critical accounts of the lives of artists published by Getty Publications. Scott, thanks for joining me on this podcast. And and let's start with Manet and the account of his life written by the novelist and contemporary of Manet, Émile Zola. By 1861, Zola was living in Paris. He comes from the south of France, where he was close friends, childhood friend to Paul Cezanne. And in Paris, he saw Manet's paintings for the first time. Over the next five years, he witnessed the volatile public reaction against Manet's paintings, and particularly the famous ones, the Dejeuner l'herbe and Olympia, two paintings that depict uh, nudity and sexuality in manners unprecedented at the time. In 1866, Zola wrote a defense of Manet, writing in part, Since no one is saying it, I will say it myself. I will shout it from the rooftops. I am so sure that Monsieur Manet will be accounted one of the masters of tomorrow that I think it would be a sound investment, if I were a wealthy man, to buy all of his canvases today. Monsieur Manet's place is marked for him in the Louvre like Courbet's, like that of any artist of strong and uncompromising temperament. Zola was 26 years old at the time, and Manet was 33. So Scott, tell us uh, about Manet's standing as an artist at the time in the mid-1860s when Zola comes to know him.
1: Well, by 1865, 66, Manet had really become, very quickly, the most controversial painter in Paris, for sure. He had made his debut at the Paris Salon, the big uh, official exhibition, state-sponsored exhibition in 1861. And that year, he actually did quite well and won an honorable mention um, on account of a somewhat sober portrait of his parents and quite a lively picture of a Spanish guitar player, which prompted a uh, rousing i Corumba by the <laughs> f- famous French critic, um, Théophile Gautier. And so Manet had come to some public attention and, you know, shown some promise. But that was quickly derailed in 1863, the year of the next Salon, when he had submitted the déjeuner sur l'herbe, as you mentioned. And that year, there were quite a large number of refusals. You know, this was a a kind of recurring problem, and artists were disgruntled. And that year, in a kind of conciliatory, even reform-minded gesture, the emperor and the administration allowed for an exhibition of the refused works, um, which was quickly dubbed the Salon des Refusés. And because it was dubbed that, you know, people came flocking to this exhibition as if they were going to like a freak show. (laughs) And Manet's Déjeuner Sulaire kind of reigned over that sort of unruly, beyond the pale display. And so it was not just the picture itself and its seeming violation of artistic decorum and flaunting of public morals by showing, um, very frankly, a contemporary nude woman picnicking with a couple of gentlemen in bourgeois dress and in a kind of a fake artificial landscape environment. It was also the context in which it was seen. And that instantly made Manet this kind of notorious figure. And in the next two years, his submissions only kind of reinforced the sort of popular opinion of him as a provocateur and troublemaker – In 1864, for instance, he showed a picture of the dead Christ with angels, and that was seen to be a kind of a profanation of a sacrosanct subject. A lot of critics, you know, thought he treated Christ like it was just a body at the morgue. Um, And then that was followed up by Olympia in 1865, which was, to contemporary eyes, a shockingly vulgar kind of modern updating of the tradition of the nude in a way that kind of violated all conventions of sort of idealizing beauty and and that sort of thing. There was so much public and critical outrage around that, that Manet was kind of blackballed the next year. And so in 1866, his submissions were refused outright. And I think that was one of the things that prompted Zola's initial – defense of Manet. So it was sort of a moment of kind of maximum controversy in Manet's career. Talk for a minute, if you can, about how this outrage was expressed.
0: This critical reaction to Manet's work wasn't expressed only in word, that is, in the printed form in a newspaper, but also in image by way of caricatures. Give us a sense of just how vitriolic the reaction was.
1: Oh, gosh. Some of the language that comes up in the criticism is, is really remarkable you know, the, the Olympia was compared to like a gorilla, uh, for instance. There was this cat with an arched back and tail upraised, and that was seen as a sign of kind of displaced, aggressive sexuality. There was this bouquet of flowers, which in some of the caricatures was implicitly identified with the woman's genitalia. You know, Manet famously sort of does away with half tones, and he presents fairly... Um, strong juxtapositions of, of light and dark with minimal indications of shadow. And some of the sort of indications of shadow were described as streaks of dirt and yeah. that kind of thing. So it was seen to be like a putrescent, dirty, defiled, deeply sexually unwholesome kind of picture that offended both artistic decorum and public morals. And, and this wasn't unique to Manet, but it was ratcheted up to such a degree
0: in the 1860s with Manet.
1: Yeah, and I think there was a lot of Crowd agitation at at the salon, where I think you know they had to have guards posted yeah. in front of the painting, so there was a degree of sort of hysterical reaction around this picture which which was uh, unusual and and to some extent un- unprecedented i think
0: so in eighteen sixty six when Zola writes this defense of manet, it is um, in a publication, but a year later he publishes it as a standalone brochure, an independent brochure, uh, a kind of book length uh, defense of manet. And in that defense of Manet, he imagines a scene where he comes across Manet in the street and he sees ruffians throwing rocks at him. And then he says this. He says, the art critics, I mean the police, are not doing their job well. They encourage the row instead of calming it down. And even, may God forgive me, it looks as though the policemen themselves have enormous brickbats in their hands. Already it seems to me there is something decidedly unpleasant about this scene which saddens me. Me, a disinterested passerby, calm and unbiased. What was Zola's career at this time? Because clearly he's got
1: uh, his own literary ambitions
0: and this is a vehicle for him to express those ambitions.
1: I think that's exactly right. And a lot of men of letters at the time in France do venture into art criticism as one way to sort of kickstart their career. Careers. I mean, this is a moment where art criticism is a sort of a major journalistic genre. And there's many newspapers um, running big, long serial reviews of the Salon with big readership. Um, so it was an important public platform for a lot of aspiring writers. Um, Zola, as you mentioned, is just sort of beginning. He and his widowed mother had moved to Paris, I think, in the late 1850s. And there were a couple years of sort of extreme poverty and he needed to sort of find gainful employment. And he started out very modestly as a clerk with the publisher Hachette. And as a kind of a sideline, he began freelancing as a a journalist and working on fiction as well. And, you know, since his childhood, he had written poetry and, you know, and some literature. Um, So it wasn't a new thing for him. And in 1865, the year of Manet's Olympia, he published his first novel, which is a sort of slightly veiled semi-autobiographical novel called The uh, Confession of Claude. I haven't read it, but apparently it was quite sordid and controversial and drew police attention. So I think, you know, he was coming into conflict with the authorities and, you know, sees Manet – Coming into conflict with the authorities. And so there's some affinity as this sort of more Republican minded, anti establishment, anti police state feeling there. And in 1867, the year of his his, um, sort of reissue as a pamphlet of his essay on Manet, he publishes Therese Racquin, which is his first really big novel, super controversial, a very sordid tale of a couple that perpetuates a murder. And then it's the how the relationship just sort of disintegrates in the aftermath of the murder. It was a hugely scandalous tale. And um, so he's just kind of stepping out into the limelight as he's writing these articles on Manet. And to some extent, I think It's certainly disingenuous for him to pretend to be the calm, unbiased, (laughs) neutral observer. He's really trying to capitalize on Manet's notoriety to to launch himself to some extent. And it's interesting in the 1870s when he's well-established as a novelist, he's not – engaging in art criticism in the same way. Zola describes Manet as if he were writing
0: his portrait of Manet. He says that, Edward Manet is of average height, more short than tall. His hair and beard are more chestnut. His eyes, which are narrow and deep set, are full of life and youthful fire. His mouth is characteristic." thin and mobile and slightly mocking in the corners, the whole of his good-looking, irregular and intelligent features proclaim a character both subtle and courageous and a disdain for stupidity and banality. And if we leave his face for his person, we find in Edward Manet a man of extreme amiability and exquisite politeness with a distinguished manner and a sympathetic appearance. And once again, you you get a sense that uh, Zola is using this Defense of Manet as a kind of exercise for his own writing skills, his own ability to, to characterize and describe a person. Uh, but you also may see it as a kind of fawning account of Manet to encourage this relationship between Zola and Manet.
1: No, I think that's exactly right. And he's also um, given the highly charged polemical context of the time with all of these critics painting Manet as some kind of flame throwing revolutionary, some kind of disheveled. Bohemian crackpot, some jokester, trickster who's kind of uh, staging these radical interventions in the salon, you know, by emphasizing his distinguished appearance and um, his sort of bourgeois background, um, his sartorial elegance, his intelligence. Um, it's a counter portrait of Manet, given what's been circulating in the press at the time.
0: When writing about Manet at this time, Zola seems, I think, to use the opportunity to give his views on modern art as such. He, he says at one time, here then is what I believe concerning art. And then he goes on to talk about it. Did, did Zola see his defense of Manet, do you think, as a kind of treatise on modern art? as something that would distinguish Zola himself as a writer on art from the predecessors like Baudelaire that would precede him? Is, is Zola making a case
1: for his own art criticism? I think... Absolutely, one hundred percent he's doing that. And and certainly distinguishing himself from forerunners like Baudelaire. In a lot of ways, we learn more about Zola's ideas of modern art and, you know, what he would call naturalism and and about Zola himself and his sensibilities than we do about Manet in many respects in this text, which is why it's so interesting maybe I should just lay out some of these basic ideas that he propounds in this text. Um, he, he talks quite a bit about beauty. And he kind of sets up as a straw man, an academic notion of ideal beauty, uh, the standard for which is the sculptural tradition of ancient Greece and Rome. And he lambasts this notion that art of the present needs to subordinate itself to this standard, this absolute ideal rooted in the ancient past. So he caricatures a kind of classicist notion of art. And in opposition to that, he sees art as a rich, progressive unfolding. Um, He calls it an epic of human creation. And the standard that he posits, as opposed to some ideal beauty, is Nature, external reality, and the variable is the diversity of human beings, creative human beings. And so it's the proliferating individual viewpoints that he celebrates. And so it's this notion of of extreme diversity. Um, It's a very relativist kind of notion of beauty and, and art. And Manet for Zola represents the most individual, the most original of his time. And so he sees Manet as adding a new note to this unfolding epic of human creation. And so it, it's a theory of kind of originality and individual artistic individuality that he is um, propounding. And the story he tells about Manet is really a series of disavowals of Manet kind of moving past the influence of his first teacher, Thomas Couture, of moving past the influence of older schools of European painting, Spanish art in particular, he mentions, and just kind of excluding all alien influence and arriving at this notion of this pure nugget of Manet's personality unhindered by any outside influences. And, you know, he creates this scenario of like, it's this artistic intelligence, this original temperament in the face of nature. And that's the scenario that matters, you know, the artist and really the eye of the artist And really like the physiology of the eye, like this is a very biological thing for Zola. It's the the flesh and blood of the artist, his sort of bodily constitution directly affecting how he sees the world and the visual facts he confronts and processes those and translates them into into patches of color and painting. Um, So it's in the end a very empirical, kind of a radically empirical notion of art making where he says, unhindered by prejudice, education previous culture. It's the artist and the eye of the artist receiving visual information and processing it. And the end result is this kind of, you know, kind of amazing formalist statement of painting as a sort of an array of colors, patches of color, and Manet's art being all about the relationships of tone and and value and these patches of color. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And this had a big impact on their modernist notions of Manet's art, where, you know, the subject matter didn't mean anything, wasn't important. He just treated everything like a still life, an arrangement of, of shapes and colors. Um, and then scholarship since that moment has really been about reinscribing Manet's art into all the things that, you know, Zola excludes. And so we're still kind of dealing with that legacy of Zola and the scholarship on Manet today, where it's like, well, his dialogue with the art in the museum is actually really important. I can't just like shunt that to the side. Yeah. We do have letters between Baudelaire and Manet, that is both from
0: Baudelaire, who was an earlier friend of Manet's, and from Manet, one to the other. And in a letter to Baudelaire from Manet, in 1863, Manet writes, I would really like to have you here, my dear Baudelaire. They are raining insults on me. I've never been led such a dance. To which Baudelaire now, this is the interesting thing, because you can't imagine Zola writing something like this. Baudelaire responds, so once again, I'm obliged to speak to you about yourself. I must do my best to demonstrate to you your own value. What you ask for is truly stupid. People are making fun of you. Pleasantries set you on edge. No one does you justice, etc., etc. Do you think you are the first to be placed in this position? Uh, this kind of sense of poking fun, pushing Manet's thing—you're just too sensitive. This kind of frankness that the older Baudelaire, longer the friend of Manet than Zola. You wouldn't find that in Zola's
1: writing. Well, and Baudelaire was, you know, raked over the coals in a true legal sense when he published uh, Fleur de Mal*. Like, like he faced real, like, legal censorship and got into real trouble in a way that Manet never did with his paintings. So Baudelaire was like, okay, you know, I've done don't, it before. don't exaggerate, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've seen a lot worse. So is, is
0: it fair to see that Manet's work is evolving uh, from one generation as it were to the next, that is, from Baudelaire to Zola, so that Mm -hmm. Baudelaire was a champion of those early dark paintings, the Spanish paintings, and then uh, Zola is a a champion of the later paintings of the later 60s and into the
1: 70s? Well, this is a tricky question. I mean, art historians always wish that Baudelaire actually, you know, devoted some art criticism to Manet, but there was a bit of a, a generational mismatch there. Most of Baudelaire's art criticism... Was sort of written in the forties, probably, ju- and and the fifties. Yeah. Um, and his famous essay, "The Painter of Modern Life," I can't remember when it first appeared. It was eventually kind of reissued in eighteen sixty three, but it had been written a little bit earlier. So, so Manet was really just beginning when Baudelaire was kind of at the end of his career as a critic. And Baudelaire is most famous for his championing of Dulacois. So, there is that romantic aspect. And then art historians also, you know, wish that Baudelaire had. Devoted the painter of modern life to Manet as opposed to the minor illustrator Constantin Guise. But Manet loved Constantin Guise, collected him, and I think in a lot of ways aspired to that moniker of the painter of modern life over the course of his career. And so Baudelaire, you know, Baudelaire dies in 1867. And, you know, he had suffered a horrible stroke in 1866. So when Zola is stepping in, that's the exact moment where Baudelaire is really on his way out. And so there's a way that Zola could kind of insert himself, identify himself with Manet and kind of wrench Manet away from that earlier association with Baudelaire. So the timing is critical there. But but Manet, you know, remains, I think, very faithful to Baudelaire's memory, um In the 1870s, famously, he has a relationship uh, with the poet Stéphane Mallarmé. They become very good friends. And both Manet and Mallarmé are in some ways caretakers of Baudelaire's memory. They collaborate on a sort of deluxe edition of Mallarmé's translation after Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Manet contributes illustrations. So it's a interesting dialogue between Manet, Mallarmé, and Edgar Allan Poe. But Baudelaire is in the mix, too, because Baudelaire was the great champion of Edgar Allan Poe in France and had translated short stories and what have you. And so Mallarmé was definitely continuing that tradition. And I imagine they must have talked about Baudelaire all the time. And in 1880, Manet has a solo show in this gallery called La Vie Moderne, Modern Life. And what does he show in that exhibition? He shows a portrait of Constantin Guy. (laughs)
0: <laughs> really you know, really?
1: Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. It's a pastel portrait. You know, Constantin is an old man at that time. And so Manet is really in the context of the gallery of modern life, advertising his sort of affiliation with Baudelaire through that portrait of Constantin But he also shows a portrait of Zola's wife in that show. And that's a moment where Manet is busy reading Zola's latest naturalist novels, Nana, The Belly of Paris, all of these great novels and is very supportive of Zola's literary career. I think he gobbles up these books. He really enjoys them. And um, they inform his own notion of modern painting and attending to the contemporary Paris and the social life of Paris and the cafes and and what have you. Um, And critics at the time certainly associated Manet with that kind of project of portraying modern life. Um, That was Zola's project, but also Baudelaire's project in different ways. You mentioned the exhibition in 1880. Three years later,
0: 1883, Manet dies. And Zola writes of him in a catalog of a memorial exhibition in the year 1884. He says, he gave up his whole life to his task. And none of us who knew him well ever dreamed of wishing him to be more balanced or more perfect. For had this been the case, he would certainly have lost most of his originality, that sharp light. That exact sense of values and that vibrant quality which distinguishes his pictures from all others. Uh, tell us about Manet's standing at the end of his life. That would lead then to this memorial exhibition, this kind of crowning achievement in 1884.
1: Things are definitely changing for Manet and on, on a number of fronts. Um, first, like as kind of deep background, there's a big political shift. I mean, the Second Empire, where Manet you know came into so much conflict with the sort of authorities in the Salon, um, that ended with The Franco Prussian War, and then subsequently the the Paris Commune and the Third Republic is established. And by the end of the 1870s, after some trial and tribulation, a pretty solid center left government is established. And Manet's political sympathies are fairly in line with this new regime. And so he has a kind of a different relationship with the official establishment in the last four or five years of his life. And in fact, an old childhood friend, Antonin Proust, who ends up being Manet's first kind of real biographer – is a politician, a Republican politician. He's a deputy in the Chamber of Deputies. And then he eventually becomes Minister of Fine Arts in the short-lived government of Leon Gambetta. And because of Proust's power, Manet gets the Legion of Honor at the end of 1881. And it's really Proust who is able to orchestrate this posthumous retrospective at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, you know, this sort of Mm -hmm. bastion of academic values. And at the same time that there was this political shift, the salon was liberalizing, the regulations were loosening up a little bit, and eventually the state relinquishes control of the salon and the artists are in charge. And all of this prepares the way for Manet getting a salon medal, the first official award he gets in the salon since that honorable mention I mentioned at the beginning, in 1861 for the Spanish singer. So it's his first official awards in 20 years. And, you know, Manet is like well into middle age at this point. And the Impressionists have been exhibiting outside the Salon since 1874. And they're the new radicals. And, and they, you know, almost by default position Manet closer to the artistic center. And conservative critics are praising Manet for sticking to the Salon. The critical tide is turning as well. Manet is still controversial. A lot of critics are not convinced, but they do take him more seriously. The temperature of the discourse is, has gone down. And there's, a you know, an uptick in his market as well. All of these sophisticated guys are buying like flower paintings from him. He becomes friends with Charles Effrusy, who is a critic writing for the Gazette des Beaux-Arts, which is not the most kind of avant-garde journal. Um, so he's he's getting some fairly posh collector's coming to his studio. He's getting new support in the sort of realm of the haute bourgeoisie. Um, Zola's publisher, Charpentier, he and his wife host a major salon, a very high-profile salon uh, in Paris, and Manet is part of that circle. And it's the Charpentiers who start this journal, La Vie Moderne, and set up at the gallery as affiliated with the journal that gives Manet this uh, solo show. And the Charpentiers have a lot of social power, and that, you know, works to Manet's benefit as well. So things are turning in his favor career-wise, but his health is declining rapidly. And um, he has a, a sort of a syphilitic condition, um, which you know we usually refer to as locomotor ataxia. It's kind of a nervous condition that has a debilitating effect on his uh, mobility and his legs. So his mobility is increasingly restricted over the years from like 1879, 80 to the end of his life in 1883. And he has to remove himself from Paris every summer to pursue various courses of treatment and rest cures and that kind of thing. And as his health declined, his production is affected. He's not doing the big dejeuner sur l'herbe type pictures anymore. He's sort of focusing on smaller scale work. He's doing little watercolors. He's doing pastels. He's doing flower paintings that he can paint while seated, um, small scale canvases, but working really brilliantly in these genres. So um, a lot of things changing for Manet in those those last years.
0: Well, I want to thank you for the time you've given us today, Scott, to, to go through these uh, accounts and to help us understand their role they play in telling us about and elevating the stature of uh, the works of Manet. Well, thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu podcasts. Thanks for listening.